I don't have any notes. Um, you're not going to need them anyway. But if you want to jot down some of these scriptures, it'd probably be a blessing to go back through the week and look over them. But we pray for the word. Lord, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for such an open heaven, your presence here. And Lord, I thank you for coming and speaking through me. Lord, everything needs to be said under mighty anointing. Even now, the Holy Spirit moving upon us to give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus, helping us lock in. To what you're saying, Lord, let it let this be as living seeds that sown into good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit. Take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. Lord, I thank you for it. Let this be a powerful, effective, fruitful time. And Lord, I thank you for the winds of your Spirit carrying this out where it needs to go. It will accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. And anything of the enemy that would try to hinder this, we bind you in Jesus' name. We break your power. You will back off right now in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I thank you for just the angels of the Lord just kind of clearing away any hindrance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to get into this tonight. This is still part 10. And I've added like a B, C, and D kind of addendums to the healing revivals because... There were some areas that we needed to talk about in this, in this section that we're on with the, the revival of the 40s and 50s. A lot of healing, but again, anytime there's a lot of pioneering that's going on with the new that's, that's coming out, there, there tends to be sometimes a little bit of extremes in different areas. And one, one of the areas, William Brandon was amazing, man of God, but he wasn't a teacher, and so... Later, especially later on in life toward the end without having um, some of the people in his life that he once had he he got a little bit off in certain areas but that some of that had to do with the group that he was in because the particular group he was in believed doctrinally in oneness so that was part of the problem but nonetheless I wanted to talk about some of these areas to kind of keep things on track and tonight I want to talk about sound doctrine so Let's look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, and it says this, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, repro reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. But they will gather to themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, having itching ears, ears rather, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn to myths. But be self-controlled in all things, endure afflictions, do the work in evangelist, and prove your ministry. So let me read some of this again. The Bible says, I charge you therefore before God, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready and season it out. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And it says the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. And that's scary because I believe, and I say this very sincerely, I really sincerely believe this, that we're living in a time when more and more people are not enduring sound doctrine. And there's an increasing number of people that don't want to hear it. And let me tell you what's scary I saw on the 700 Club's news that they were saying that there was some kind of a study, and there's only about 25% of our nation, and even among many professing Christians, but think of that, that believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God now. 25% in our culture. And even among people that call themselves Christians, I don't, I don't, believe that everybody calls themselves a Christians nowadays is actually a Christian but they they don't believe they don't take the Bible seriously and see when you when you don't take the Bible seriously and you really don't believe it's the infallible perfect word of God you're not going to line your life up with that word you're in danger of major deception and ultimately spending an eternity in hell how many understand that so what they'll do because they're not enduring sound doctrine, they don't want to hear it anymore. They will gather unto themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. So in other words, I don't want to hear that. 
So I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to find somebody that's going to tell me what I want to hear. That's what they're doing. Isn't this amazing, though, on a positive note, that this was predicted by Paul as a prophecy 2,000 years ago? That somehow he looked way into the future and he saw the last of the last days right before Jesus comes and he prophesied to us in those days there's going to be a number of people that don't want to hear it anymore. And they'll search high and low to find them somebody. Like, for example, they want to live a homosexual lifestyle or be comfortable with it. So they'll go find them a place that either won't say anything negative about it or will condone it. They won't sit under the truth. So anyway, that's the time that we're living now. And they'll, it says they'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn to myths. But be self-controlled in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist, improve your ministry. And then Acts 20, verse 25, the Apostle Paul said this, Now I know that all of you among whom I went preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. So what happened in this story here was that Paul knew by the Holy Spirit that he was going to end up you know, he, he knew that he was going to end up in Jerusalem and then Rome, etc., and he was going to probably um, die for, for the faith. And so he gathered to himself all of his leaders that he could, and they met with him. And now he was sharing this among leadership. So he was sharing this among the pastors and teachers and the elders of various churches that were brought together at this location. So this wasn't necessarily for the lay people per se, but it was more of like a, what we would call maybe today a leader's conference or something. So people were gathered unto Paul, and this is what he was saying to them. He said, now I know that all of you among whom I went around proclaiming the kingdom of God will not see my face anymore. So he was telling them, this is the last time you're going to see me. And so he really was sharing his heart with them, and he said, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not keep from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul never shrunk back from preaching the whole counsel of God. He shared everything. I mean, even if people were offended at it, he wasn't going to water it down. And so he said in verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to the entire flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure... Dreadful wolves will enter among you, not sparing the flock. Now, anytime the Bible talks about wolves, it's talking about evil people coming in among the sheep, okay? And he said this, he said, even from among you, you that are present, that's a scary thing, isn't it? So all of his leaders were there, and Paul says, after I go, Unfortunately, the Holy Spirit has shown me that there's going to be wolves coming in among you and even among some of you that I'm talking to tonight, some of you will be the wolves. And he said this, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw the disciples away after them. Therefore, watch remembering. Now, remember any time you see watch, what that means is it's a word in the New Testament used um, simultaneously like with prayer. So what he's saying there is be prayerful. Stay, stay in deep prayer so that you can discern these things. You can see them when they come. And so he said, now watch, remembering that for three years, night and day, I did not cease to warn everyone with tears. So we know that there's, there's a time that we're living now that was predicted when people just don't want to hear it anymore. Now, I know that there's still a remnant. Everybody say remnant. So are you guys a part of the remnant? I believe I am, and I believe that you are. But there's still a remnant that want to hear the truth. And they love the word, and they love the Lord. But there's an increasing number that don't want to hear it anymore. And now because of that, um, the Bible also indicates that there's an increasing number of wolves that are coming in to not spare the flock. And you can see that in the day that we're living. There's more and more wolves that are creeping in. And unfortunately, 
I think some places have become kind of conducive for the wolves. And then 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, it says this. Paul says, for such are false apostles and deceitful workers. Did you know there can be false apostles? There can be false teachers. There can be false prophets. There can be another gospel. There can be a false Christ that is being preached and a different spirit at work than the Holy Spirit. So we have to know the Lord for ourselves and we have to know the word. And as we walk close to him and we know the word for ourselves and we know the Holy Spirit, I have more faith in God to keep me than I have fear in the devil to deceive me. But it's because I have a relationship with him. See, I don't just know about him. I know him. And there's a big difference there. So... The Bible says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. For no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Can you believe that the Bible says that there's going to be Satan's servants that are masquerading as preachers? Make sure that the people that you're sitting under and listening to are really true men and women of God because some of them are not. Now, let me give you a few things tonight that I just wanted to read. I thought this was really interesting, so I'm just going to kind of read through this. But Billy Graham said this, and I really, this stuck with me. It was a real blessing to me, and I believe this is incredibly important. But I'm just going to read what he said. Billy Graham said, We in the church have failed to remind this generation that while God is love, he also has the capacity to hate. He hates sin, and he will judge it with the fierceness of his wrath. This generation is schooled in the teaching about an indulgent, soft-hearted God whose judgments are uncertain, and coddles those who break his commandments. This generation finds it difficult to believe that God hates sin. I tell you that God does hate sin, just as a father hates a rattlesnake that threatens the safety of his child. God loathes evil and diabolical forces that would pull people down to a godless eternity, just as a mother hates a venomous spider that is found playing on the soft, warm flesh of her little baby. It is his love for man, his compassion for the human race that prompts God to hate sin with such a vengeance. He gave heaven's finest that we might have the best and he loathes with a holy abhorrence anything that would hinder our being reconciled to him. Amen. And then I wanted to read this. This is a little bit different approach, but Steve Hill was describing, he wrote a really good book called, like, I believe it's Spiritual Avalanche. Is that, is that right? Something like that. Yeah, look it up, get the book, and read it. I believe it was like a, the voice of a prophet before he passed away. But Steve wrote, wrote this book, and I just want to share briefly a couple excerpts out of the book. He wrote this. Now, this is how Satan has been kind of maneuvering to try to get the church to be more, uh, how, how would I, I'm trying to say this correctly, trying to make the church conducive for just getting as many people there as possible. Okay, okay. So keep that in mind, and this is what he wrote. As a church, how attractive do we really have to be? As saints search for the you know, big air quotes here, perfect church. Today's pastor is under tremendous pressure to cater more and more to picky parishioners. Facing declining attendance and dwindling bank accounts, the spiritual leader comes to the conclusion that much prayer is not the only answer to his woes. If he's going to be successful, he must look to others who have found the success he feels has eluded him. So he signs up for the latest conference. 
a church growth conference <laughs> put on by a local mega church in hopes of learning techniques that are guaranteed to work. He attends as many workshops and sessions as he can, taking careful notes of everything. It doesn't take long for the pastor to realize that the teachings center more on sound business practices rather than on spiritual biblical principles. And so Rob Parsley said, he said, if I want to learn how to use business practices, I'll go sign up at my local community college and take a business class. He said, when I come to church, I want to experience the power of God. But anyway, back to this. And he said, of course, everything is packaged, though, just the right amount of religious talk to give it the pretense of being spiritual. But the core of the teaching is born in the soul. Deep in the spirit of the man, the holy man of God, deep in his spirit, he senses that something is off. But he quickly rationalizes it, believing that the end will justify the means. He tells himself, we'll reach more people, win more souls, and do more for the community. Valid desires, no doubt. The temptation has reached a feverish pitch. Now he will finish in the flesh what he started in the spirit. The pastor comes home and immediately gets to work implementing the new programs, the philosophies that he acquired. It's an easy one, two, three. Set the atmosphere, provide ample amenities, and adjust the message. Basically, in a nutshell, because I've, I've looked into these things, it's condensed the service down to be a certain amount of time. The decor is important. Have lots of amenities. Give everybody their cappuccino and all that. And adjust the message to not offend anybody. That's basically what it... Okay. One of the teachings at a local conference was to never... Listen to this. One of the teachings at the local conference was to never let the Sunday morning crowd know what you actually believe. You do realize that this is actually going on. Some of, some of you that's been around for a while and in church for a while are thinking, is this really going, oh, it's really going on. And then Steve goes on to say, now let's complete our picture of the modern day church. The pastor and his associates waste no time getting to work on creating the proper atmosphere. And we're not dealing with Holy Ghost here, Okay. Yeah, the guest must be welcome to a warm and friendly environment that sets them at ease. Religious items must go so that seekers are not immediately turned off to offensive images. For example, any pictures of like a cross or Christ or anything like that. Did you know that that's part of it? A portrait of Jesus on the cross is taken down and replaced with abstract art. Counters that once showcased missions and evangelistic outreach are now thrown out to make room for the bistro tables to serve coffee. A few coats of paint, new furnishings, and soon the entrance to the church rivals the local coffee shop. Members are static as they can now fill up on tasty pastries and sip cappuccinos from the comfort of their easy chair before, during, and after the service. The foyer was just the first step of setting the right atmosphere. The worship team is now coached to the next level. The service is rehearsed several times to nail down every second so not to waste a moment. The worship experience might kick off with a secular song right off the pop charts. Yes, it does happen. There's places that sing U2 music in their service. This is supposed to bring the congregation together and set the tone for the rest of the service. Pastors and teachers worldwide have succumbed to the heretical teachings, including universal reconciliation, the deification of man, challenging the validity of the word of God, including his judgments, and even lifting any boundaries, claiming that God's supposed amazing grace here is actually amazing freedom. They teach you to live in accordance to your own desires. So in other words, church has simply become about them, not about him. In other words, what does your flesh want? We're just going to cater to that and give people anything they want. One pastor recently gave a message in tongues and interpretation, which never happens in this particular place. 
And the church was packed on Sunday morning after giving the interpretation. Listen to this. He apologized for drifting away from their calling as a Pentecostal church. He stated he wanted to return to their roots and asked a show of hands who was with him. Only half raised their hands. That church rejected the fire of God, his power, and Holy Ghost tongues. They believe that stuff should be relegated to the back room or in home cell groups only. Did everybody just hear that? A lot of places have tried to move anything, tongues, intercessors, the power of God, any display of the supernatural, the gifts, anything like that. They've wanted to run that right out of the sanctuary. Once people started making their own rules, anything goes. Yes, houses of worship across our nation are buzzing with activity. Tell your neighbor, everyone is saved. There's no judgments. You have to hear our pastor. He's amazing. One minister invited his church to go door to door with a loaf of bread and a bottle of wine to give them as a token of the church's love. Come one, come all. Another sad situation is a church I know that encourages bring your own booze to parties. Sanctioned by the church to be held at private homes so as not to offend any new outsiders. Steve Hill goes on to say Jezebels and Judases are now rampant in churches. And this was from his book, Spiritual Avalanche. And one more I want to read. Michael Brown wrote this. He said, it is increasingly common to hear about worship leaders getting drunk after church services and dropping F-bombs while they boast about their so-called liberty in the Lord. Some churches are now hiring unsaved musicians to play on their worship teams because of their talent. A few months ago, Michael Brown wrote this. He said, a young man posted a mocking, irreverent comment on my Facebook page because I didn't recognize his name. I clicked on his profile to find out more about him, only to be shocked to see that he describes himself as a guitar player at a church in Plano, Texas. When I posted a scriptural response to his mocking comment, he explained to me he didn't care anything about Jesus or the word of God. I asked him, but don't you play guitar at a church worship band? He replied, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any of that stuff. But my father goes to the church and they need a guitarist, so they hired me to play. So Michael Brown asked the question, so what now churches are allowing God mocking atheists on the worship team? Another pastor reported his worship team hanging out with a worship leader from a large church in the area, perplexed by the F-bombs and profanity they kept hearing over and over. Another pastor told, Michael Brown says, another pastor told him that he sent a number of his young people from the congregation to train in a ministry school known for its worship. All of them came back to his church with a drinking problem, all of them. The result of hanging out with other worshipers in this ministry school. Is anybody seeing a problem here? Where is the fear of God and the holiness? And I'm just going to read this and then kind of bring it all together. Uh, entertainment. So we can see in our culture that Satan is at work in several areas that's laying stage for the end times. You remember me preaching this years ago? Some of you has been with me for very long. I've believed for a long time that some of the greatest persecutors of true biblical Christianity will be the fake Christianity because there is a group that's been emerging now for a while. This has been going on for a couple decades that they do not believe that you have to be born again. They do not adhere to the word of God. They do not believe that you have to repent of your sins. And they are totally fine. They're very liberal, and they're fine with things like homosexual marriage, abortion, et cetera, et cetera. And those are going to be the ones that are going to align themselves with the Antichrist and kind of represent Christianity, if you will, but it is a very hybrid form. It's a fake Christianity. And they will be some of the ones that hate true Christianity the most. How many can already begin to see that? So in our culture, we're seeing a lot of things come together and kind of coalesce in these end times that's preparing for end time prophecies fulfillment in every area. Entertainment. 
where Jezebel has a throne, pushes sex, witchcraft, violence, and rebellion. There's a promotion of satanic music in the occult as well. Even children's cartoons now promote witchcraft and new age. Banking, big business, and the economy are slowly setting the stage for a cashless society, which one will become which one day will become the mark of the Antichrist, the 666. You won't be able to buy or sell without that mark. You know, Stephen was just showing me the other day, he wanted me to see there was a, a cartoon or whatever. There's something to do, it's targeting our kids, but it was something, I think, from a comic book source, but it was still a cartoon for young people. And I don't think just for little kids, I think this was something that, like, teenagers would watch too. And in this particular scene, he's showing me this because he wanted me to be aware of what's going on. There was a guy that steps out and he steps on something and this pentagram forms on the floor and it's a flaming pentagram on the floor. And out of the ground is summoned up this entity that comes up through the pentagram. And this being comes up, it's, it's got horns. I mean, it looks just like a demon or, or what you would envision Satan would. And it comes up and then it goes in and it possesses one of the superheroes, goes in his mouth and possesses him, his eyes changed, and then he obtains power through that. Now, I guess because my wife and I, her testimony, etc., I know a little bit about these things. For somebody to have put that in that cartoon, they, know, they have to know what they're doing because that's a perfect description of a satanic ritual to summon a spirit. That, that's not something you just wake up one day, oh, this is a cool little thing to put in there. This is something that that person knew that that is what happens. They had to have. And so that's being put in things that's targeting young people, you see. And then I, I wrote some more here. The global, believe it or not, the global military is gearing up for world conflict to destroy Israel, kill Christians, and promote the rise of the Antichrist in the end. It will play a major role in killing Jews and Christians, burning Bibles, and destroying churches. It will be used to martyr the believers. The medical field promotes abortion, occult healing, and atheism. The judicial system is full of worldliness, greed, and the love of money. But we have had a victory recently, praise God. There is an honoring of a man-made constitution over the Bible, and that scares me in America because you listen to some circles, and man, they just talk about the Constitution. Look, I, I'm for the Constitution. Understand that I'm a conservative. I'm, I love America, and, I, and that's the highest law of the land. But the Bible trumps anything in this, in this nation. It trumps the Constitution. And it's the most important writing that is in this land, okay? And so I think some people have made, like, the Constitution their little Bible or something, the government makes laws that cause sin and promote things like abortion, homosexuality, and even Satanism. Did you know that in America, you got to understand, I understand freedom of religion, but whenever our nation now is sanctioning um, houses of worship that directly, openly worship Satan, and they're okay with that, and they're giving them a 501c3 or whatever, how many knows God has a problem with that? The, our school system has taken the Bible and prayer out of schools and replaced it with things like Harry Potter, yoga, meditation, transgender, and all these other teachings about other religions. They seem to be fine with kids bowing down to um, Allah or, or sitting cross-legged and praying to Buddha. But the, the moment you say the name Jesus Christ, all of a sudden just they just have this big problem with it. You see what I'm saying? It's an antichrist spirit. Schools and colleges promote a very ungodly agenda that's anti-Christian and liberal. It will tolerate anything but what is of God. It is full of humanism and pride. The political arena is setting stage through the United Nations and the European Union to promote the one world government, which will bring about a false peace that will catapult the Antichrist into position one day. There is a radical destabilizing of world economies and governments that's been going on for a while that will one day lead to like a unification of governments and religion and set stays for the Antichrist and the false prophet. So these things are happening. But how many knows that God has a major outpouring of the Holy Spirit? 
I, and I believe this with every fiber of my being. I'm not just saying this to kind of encourage people or to give you some kind of a hope or something. I'm not saying it for that reason. I believe with all my heart that the Lord is about to pour out his spirit with a greater intensity than any past revival that we've seen or read about. And the reason for that outpouring is it's going to make what's been impossible become possible. Satan's been having his way and doing his thing, and that is going to be fulfilled in end-time prophecy. It has to be. That's going to happen. But God is going to pour out such a, an intense move of the Holy Spirit that's going to usher in a supernatural harvest. It's going to sanctify and get a bride ready to meet him in the air, and it's going to get us uh, what's been impossible. It's going to make it possible. Okay, so that's God's move. Satan has been doing his move, but God has his move. Amen? So let me just give you a couple quick things before I close out. When we're dealing with sound doctrine, one of the things that we need to say up front, I'm, I'm a teacher, and I do a lot of teaching, a lot of research and study and all that, and I love God's Word. Now, I've studied the Word for many, many years. I've studied end-time prophecy for over 20 years. And so I love the word, but the Bible, number one, sound doctrine, number one, is the Bible is the infallible word of God. That means that it's perfect. That means that if you don't understand something, it's not God's fault you don't understand it. God didn't have a problem writing it. It's just that fallen humanity has a hard time understanding it without the Holy Spirit helping us sometimes but it's still the perfect word of God. It doesn't actually contradict itself at all. These people that say that just don't understand it. You understand what I'm saying? They say it does, but it doesn't. The Bible is the perfect word of God, and it's what we base our life on. So the word of God, when it says that we need to repent of this, that, and the other, how many knows we better repent of this, that, and the other? The Bible is going to teach us what pleases God and what displeases God. And it's going to teach us how we're going to get into heaven and how we're going to miss heaven. So the Bible is extremely important that we know it for ourselves and that we're established in sound doctrine. So number one is the infallible word of God. And there's been a war on the word of God for a couple decades. And I remember when it started. Number two. There is one God, eternally existent in three persons, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the triune God has made man in his image being triune. You and I, as human beings, we have a spirit, a soul, and a body. We are a triune being, just as we're made in the image of God. Number three is the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've been talking about a couple weeks ago, there's all these other Christs. You know, and what do they usually say about him? They always want to relegate him to just a man or just a prophet. No, Christ is God in the flesh. Okay, he is deity. The Father is deity, the Son is deity, and the Holy Spirit is deity. And so we have to understand the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Son of God. The Bible talks about, number one, his virgin birth. Matthew 1, 23. These will be in the notes. I'm not going to read every scriptural reference. But his virgin birth, his sinless life. Jesus was without any sin. How many knows that? In fact, I've heard some people, they're always trying to make this Jesus in their image. And I've heard people say, well, Jesus was this great rebel that rebelled against this, that, and the other. Well, number one, that's completely false. But if he was a rebel, then he couldn't have died for us because he was a sinner. Jesus wasn't rebelling. Jesus was fully submitted to the Father. Everything the Father wanted him to do, he did. Everything the Father wanted him to say, he said. The people that had a problem with Jesus had a problem with the Father. Number three, Jesus was validated by his miracles. Number four, his substitutionary work on the cross, he died in our place. So the best way to understand that is this. Before God, all of us have sinned many times, and we have an abundance of sin. Our sin separated us from God. Our sin has caused us to deserve hell. But Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. So let me give this example. 
let's say that you and I have a criminal record, and I'm just going to use this tablet that this represents our criminal record before God, a life that has abundant sin. And Jesus, picture an innocent man who never did a thing wrong coming into the courtroom. Here you are about to be sentenced. And this innocent man comes in and says, Judge, let me go to the electric chair on their behalf, and I want you to take their criminal record, and I want you to put it on me, and when I die, I'm taking that with me in their place. I will suffer their punishment that they deserve, and their record will be expunged. It'll be like they never were arrested in the first place. That's Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross. He took our punishment. You know what grace is? Grace is we get what Jesus actually deserves, God's favor. We don't deserve that. Jesus deserves it. We get that grace because of him. You know what mercy is? We don't get what we actually do deserve. Also in Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, Jesus raised from the dead in a glorified body. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. That's why his hands still had holes in them and, and he could walk and they weren't bleeding. He could walk through a wall. Jesus was in a glorified body and he was the first fruits. When he raptures us, our bodies are going to come up. Those that are alive and remain will be changed like that. But the dead in Christ, their bodies are going to come up and be glorified in the blink of an eye. And their spirit and soul are going to come into their body. And they're going to be resurrected in bodily form as a, as a glorified body. And that's the first resurrection. So Jesus, raised from the dead, was given a glorified body. And he is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's, he's the one that shows us one day you may die before he comes. And your body may go on the ground. It may decay. But there's coming a day when your body will be raised and will be glorified and be given back to you. And that glorified body will never age or get sick again. It'll be like it's supposed to be. And when we do get raptured, we're going to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb with these glorified bodies, and then we're going to come back with him to reign with him on the earth for a thousand years. And the next one is, after Jesus raised from the dead, he was exalted to the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession. Number four, we believe in the blessed hope, the rapture of Christ's true remnant bride at his coming, Titus 2.13, and many other scriptures. Number five, we believe the only means of being cleansed from sin is through repentance and faith in the precious blood of Jesus. So in other words, there's not any other way that you're going to get to heaven. You can do all the good works that you can possibly do. It will never earn you a salvation. That's one of the big differences between us and other forms of um, false Christianity, like the Mormon church, for example. You know, and I, I love Mormon people. I didn't need to dig against them as individuals, but they believe a false doctrine. And one of the things they believe is, is that they can earn their salvation by doing good works. How many knows there's never enough good works that's going to earn your salvation? God has made that abundantly clear. Our good works are like filthy rags before God. So our only means of salvation is to, is to turn from our sin and put our faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross. When we do that, there is a new birth. Salvation is received through repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the evidence of salvation in somebody's life is the inward evidence of the witness of the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, Romans 8, 16. That's why I don't believe in, and I probably never will do anything like this, but it's not my job to be trying to tell people that they're saved. It's my job to tell people you better make sure that you're saved. It's the Holy Spirit's job to bear witness in them that they're a child of God. Does that make sense? Is I can give somebody a false hope or a false security. My job is, is you make sure 
What did Paul tell the Corinthians church? He said, you better examine yourself and make sure that you are in the faith if you do pass the test. And then the second evidence is in uh, living a righteous, holy life. Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. How many knows that there's going to be with true Christians, there is going to be a difference let me tell you, I just heard Steve Hill talking about this today. It's one little clip, and it kind of summed up his message in the Brownsville Revival so well. You ought to go to our church page. I posted there just to share it with everybody. But he talked about that we must know the Lord. He said, I've known people telling him, well, I grew up in church my whole life. I've never really known a time where I wasn't a Christian and and you ask him, well, when did you accept the Lord? Well, I've just kind of been saved my whole life. And Steve said, well, I hope that you really are. I hope that you're not just religious. I hope that you've really been born again. He said, I'll tell you this. Have you been speaking to the Lord? Is he speaking to you? Because he said, it's not about religious things like going to church and all that that's going to get you into heaven. The question is, do you really know him? That, he's, that right there is basically the message he preached night after night there. Do you really know him? Because if you, if you say, well, I'm a Christian, a lot of people say that, but are you really born again? And if you really are born again, then that means that people should see about you that you're radically different than what you were before your salvation. And if you're not a completely radically I mean, totally different person than what you were before. Then no, you're not born again. You just think you are. You're religious. And then number six, regeneration. That means the new birth, the Holy Spirit. You're born again by the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 5. And that right there is the key. Is that, you know, a lot of people can come and you can talk to people on the street and you can kind of get them to pray with you or something. But let me be careful with that, those of you that go out witnessing. Be careful with that, that you don't get somebody just to pray with you to get you off their back. And they just mentally agree with what you're saying. That's not going to save them. Did you know that? Did you know you can just mentally agree with something? You can mentally agree with what I'm saying tonight. That's not necessarily going to get you into heaven. You must be born again. And that's a supernatural thing. When you look to Jesus and you ask him and the Holy Spirit comes in you and you know that the Holy Spirit bears witness. And see, I don't need anybody to tell me that I'm a Christian. In fact, I can have 25 people. I can walk out of here and have walked by 25 people that tell me you're not a Christian. You're not saved. You're not going to heaven. They can keep telling me that. As I walk out of here 25 times, I'll get in my car and say every one of them's a liar. I know that I'm saved. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's in me and he bears witness I'm a child of God. Number seven, water immersion. The power of water baptism. Number eight, the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. Not only for the forgiveness of sin, but the healing that was in his stripes on his back. And the deliverance that he paid for as he hung on the cross, becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13, 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus paid for our forgiveness of sins, but he paid for us to be healed, and he paid for us to be delivered. Number nine, the baptism in the Holy Ghost. I don't have time to really teach on doctrine too much. But when you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. But when you're baptized in the Holy Ghost, Jesus is the one that baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. You are filled and you're clothed with power from on high. And that clothing of power, now the gifts are going to be in operation in your life. There's going to be tongues, and there's going to be gifts, and there's going to be power in your life. And then also, number 10, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, by whose indwelling the Christian is enabled to live a holy life. How many knows the Holy Spirit helps us to live a holy life? Number 11, the resurrection of both the saved and the lost, one to everlasting life and another to everlasting damnation. And number 12, the kingdom to come. 
we believe Jesus is coming to reign for a thousand years. Then after that, the Father's coming, and he will reign on the earth forever, and God will be with man for all of eternity. Now, that's just basic sound doctrine. Basics. That's the ABCs. But you'd be surprised how many people don't know these things anymore because they're not being taught them. I think the main problem that people have, though, with revival is probably manifestations. I want to close with two things. One of them is, is not in these notes, but I just want to take a quick rabbit trail. Do you remember me telling you guys from the mid-1700s to the, around the mid-1800s, we have three awakenings. The first one in the days of like Wesley and Edwards, then we had the Cane Ridge Revival, then what we have, Jeremiah Lampier and those in the mid-1800s. There were three major outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at, this is so interesting to me, if you look at the tabernacle of Moses, what do you have? You have the outer court, then you have the holy place, then you have the holy of holies, okay? When you're going into the tabernacle, you go through the, holy, the outer court to the holy place, but your destination is what? To get into the glory where the Lord is. And we know that these things were taken from heaven, that, that is, there's a literal temple in heaven, and it was shown to Moses who replicated on the earth. All right, so the first great outpouring of the Holy Spirit for about 100 years was pretty much the outer court experience. It was just about salvation. The blood of Jesus, the waters of baptism, it was all about a salvation experience. And it was primarily Baptist and Presbyterian, and then it formed the Methodists, but it was those early revivals. Then it seems like God began a whole nother wave and he added to that and he brought in his power and this came in in the early 1900s really the late 1800s but there began to be a move of healings and miracles and the baptism and the Holy Ghost with tongues and power the Sousa Street the most famous of all of that but we know um 1901 Topeka but nonetheless that began something there you know what that was that was moving into the holy place and let me show you what I mean in the outer court the Levites primarily ministered there and they just wore the white garments but for the priesthood the sons of Aaron to get into the holy place they also had to have the blue tunic on with the golden ephod they had to have that on to get from the outer court to the holy place. You know what that represents? Those bells and pomegranates on that? That represents the fruits and the gifts of the Holy Ghost. And it represents the clothing of power, the baptism in the Holy Ghost. And that's what brought them in. That They couldn't go into the holy place without that, those garments. And so they went from the outer court, I believe in that first hundred years, God began to increase what he was doing. He added now the power of God, the, the tongues, the gifts, the healings, the deliverances. And it was moving from the outer court now into the holy place. And his people began to get baptized in the Holy Ghost. And you begin to see like in the holy place, you move from natural light, you move into revelation where it's lit by the menorah. And now we begin to get revelation knowledge. And we began to move into a dimension of power and revelation and the supernatural that they didn't necessarily have before. Does this make sense? And this is where the table of showbread was. And this is the menorah and the incense of deep. See, now there could be deep Holy Ghost prayer in tongues and deep intercession and groans in the spirit that... that Help bring that incense, so to speak, of prayer that went up before God. And yes, that is New Testament. In Revelation, the, the bowls of incense were brought before God, the prayers of the saints. But they moved, God moved us closer to him. We went from just an outer court to a holy place encounter. And that lasted from like Topeka all the way through the 80s, which I'm going to get into soon. Into the 80s, the, the power of God during that time. But listen to what I'm saying. When we moved into the 90s revivals, 
something shifted. And you know what God brought in now? He brought in his glory like no other time. And what marked the end time revivals of the 90s, and I believe we're about to see another upsurge of it big time, was that thick manifest glory of God. So you had still, God was adding to. He wasn't taking away something and replacing it. No, we still had the gospel message and we still had the baptism, the Holy Ghost and power, but he added also the glory. And that was what was in the Holy of Holies. That's what made the Holy of Holies awesome was God's glory in there. And so my point is, is that now we're in the final stages. God said, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And this really started in the 1700s, but it went from that outer court to the holy place. Now we've already moved into that glory realm. And you know what this final work's going to do? It's going to get us ready to meet him in the air and go to the marriage supper. Isn't that awesome? So you can see the progressive increase of what God has been doing. So I'm just going to close with this final thing. It's this, manifestations. I think that the greatest stumbling block in revival is people just don't like manifestations. And I've thought about this now for over 20 years because I've been in revival for a very long time and I've seen all these manifestations many times over. I've experienced them. I've, I've seen many other people experience them. And I've wondered about it. I'm like, well, why, why do people have a problem with it? I think there's a couple reasons. I think one is fear. I think that people have a tendency to be afraid of what they don't understand and afraid of what they can't control. Number one. And I think another one is pride. I think people look down on things like that. They don't want, they don't want to look silly because something's happening to them. They don't like it. They're full of pride, and so they look down their nose at it. But I think that right there is I've wondered, God, why do you do the things you do sometimes? I've just wondered about it. I've, within myself, asked the Lord, thing, and I believe God showed me this a long time ago. God gives his grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. I believe that God does things a certain way on purpose because it's going to require for us to go deeper in him. It's going to require us to humble ourselves down and enter with humility to receive what he wants to give us. But the arrogant person, that will be a stumbling block to them. They'll get up to that point and they'll look down their nose at it and they'll back off and say, I don't want that. Well, okay. You've just proved the scripture which says God opposes the proud. God put that stumbling block there and you stumbled over it. He had something for you, but you don't want it because of your pride. So the manifestations of the Holy Spirit are the thing I think that brings the greatest controversy and revival. Because I don't think by and large the presence of God coming in and people getting saved that doesn't really bring too much controversy and it doesn't even bring too much controversy about people maybe just simply getting healed of something. I think pretty much most of Christendom is okay, but when you start getting to the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and the gifts, that's where controversy comes right there. So the first manifestation of the Holy Spirit is going to be tongues. Acts chapter 2 Jesus kept telling him, he said, listen, when I go, it's better I go. The promise that I've been telling you, God's going to send you his spirit. Go wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes. He's the promise of the Father. And as soon as the Holy Spirit came, what is the first manifestation? There was tongues of fire, what? Tongues. And so that's pretty much going to be right off the bat, one of the first manifestations that's going to come up when God's moving is people are going to get baptized in the Holy Ghost and they're going to begin to speak in other tongues. But Jesus told us in Mark 16, he said, these signs will follow them that believe in my name. You'll drive out demons and speak in new tongues. So there's, listen to what I'm saying because I'm dealing with doctrine. There's diverse tongues. Did you know that? Diverse tongues. What that means is, is that these signs follow them that believe in my name. That's for everybody. There's going to be a prayer language that is available to all of us. How many have a prayer language? That's one thing. You pray at home. 
You can pray in your prayer language anytime. But there's also the gift of giving a message in tongues that requires an interpretation and it's for the edification of another or a group. That's different than your prayer language. As a matter of fact, I may be worshiping and just kind of praying in the spirit to myself. All of a sudden, God's given me a message in tongues and the dialect will totally change. It'll have a beginning and an ending and then there'll be an interpretation. So diverse tongues, not only diverse tongues in that, but also, did you know that there are people that speak in other tongues and it's actually an earthly language that can be understood? Did you know the, in the Azusa Street Revival, a true documented story of a man that came there just out of curiosity? He was in Los Angeles. He was a Jew. He went in there and was somewhat uncomfortable about everything until this lady had come down from the top area and as she came down from the top area, she began to speak in tongues and spoke perfect Hebrew to him and gave him the gospel in Hebrew. He could not believe it. And he asked her, he said, how is it that you've come to know Hebrew? She said, I don't even know what you're talking about. I just spoke in a tongue. He gave his life to the Lord. Isn't that awesome? So there's going to be tongues that sometimes or an earthly language, but the Bible also says of men and angels. So there's also heavenly languages and tongues that are not of an earthly origin. And also, Satan hates tongues with a passion, and so he's always been in opposition to tongues, but tongues are tremendously powerful because the Bible says we don't always know how to pray, but the Holy Spirit will help us and he will pray through us. We need tongues. It's desperate in our lives. Also, another thing that is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that's very common is people falling under the power. Ezekiel 1.28, 3.23, Daniel 10.9. Revelation 1.17, John 18.6, Acts 9. There's so many different examples of this, but one of them would be this. When Jesus, when all the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, and they asked him, said, we're looking for Jesus, and he said, I am, all of them fell backward on the ground. Did y'all know that was in the Bible? Look this way and try to hear me tonight because you're going to be asked about this. You ready to deal with your loved ones and others that don't understand? I'm trying to help you here. But there's going to be one of the great manifestations in revival is people falling under the power. Someone says, well, why do they have to fall down? I'll tell you why, because they can't stand up. Because the presence of God is too strong. It's not rocket science. It's just that the presence of God comes in so heavy and weighty that they collapse under the power of God. Also, number three, deliverance from demon spirits, even in the middle of church. Luke 4.33, Jesus cast a demon out of somebody right in the middle of church. So another manifestation of revival and the deep, powerful moving of the Holy Spirit is demons manifesting and fleeing in terror. Also, jerking, shaking, or trembling under the power. Daniel 10, 7, Jeremiah 23, 9, Habakkuk 3, 16, Psalm 99, 1, Psalm 114, 7, but shaking under the power. The power of God is, is, is just that. I mean, it's like a, an electric current or, an, or a, a dynamite explosion. It, there's, a, there's a shaking, just like when God's power came down in the Bible on Mount Sinai. What happened? The mountain shook with his power. And so when we're touched by the power of God, there's going to be a trembling many times. And I, I've seen so many different stories. I could tell you just many, many occasions that these things have happened. But probably one of my favorite about shaking was this. A family had heard about God moving here. And they lived pretty far away, but they showed up one night because they wanted prayer. And they brought their little boy. And I would guess he was probably around 9 or 10 years old. And we just simply went through praying for people. And these people had never really been around this type of power of God. This little kid hadn't for sure. And he got prayer. And I remember he just collapsed under the power. 
And I just go through finishing praying for everybody. And as I was done, I remember looking over at him, and he was, he was so shaking under the power on the floor that he was kind of coming up off the ground, so I'm just trembling under the power of God. What an encounter with God this young man was having. I'm going to tell you, God was touching him. There's no telling what his future holds. He's probably got a call in his life to do something for the Lord later on in life. And God brought him in here so that he could be anointed for ministry, if you will. What about trances? Mariah Woodworth Edders saw a lot of trances in her meetings. I've heard of many people having these encounters and the awakenings that we read about. They talked about people falling under the power and they would be caught up in a vision or something for hours, sometimes all through the night and into the next day. And they would see, they would talk about things they saw. They saw things that are heavenly. They, they saw angels. They saw an encounter. They saw Jesus. And they came out of these trances totally changed. Well, is it in the Bible? As a matter of fact, it is. What about Peter on the rooftop when he was caught up in a trance and God lowered down a sheet, opened it, and said, take and eat, and he, or kill and eat, and he said, I never have eaten this. He said, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Talking about the gospel going to the Gentiles. But Peter himself was caught up in a trance. Another one is shrieks. Acts 8, 7. When ministry takes place, sometimes demons come out with a shriek will manifest. Also, groaning, moaning, or wailing. Acts, Romans 8, 26. Remember that the Bible says that we don't know how to pray, but the Spirit will pray through us with groans too deep for words groaning deep moaning wailing that has to do with intercession intense weeping or laughing nehemiah 1 4 ezekiel 10 1 psalm 126 5 through 6 intense weeping or laughing also deep bowing ezra 10 1 that happened a lot at Cambridge. they said that the women would just be like this they'd bow over and their their hair came loose and it would be like a whip because they were just bowing. But it's Ezra 10.1, Psalm 35, 13 through 14. Also, what about laughing in the spirit? Psalm 126, 1 through 3, Proverbs 17, 22. Or being still and solemn. Psalm 25, 5, 27, 14, 131, 131, verse 2. What about being drunk in the spirit? We saw some of that at this last conference. Acts 2.13, they thought that they were drunk. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul said he compared it to drunkenness. He said, don't be drunk with wine. It leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He's comparing it to drunkenness. What about visions and dreams? Acts 10.9-17, Joel 2.28. When the Holy Spirit's being poured out, there's going to be dreams and visions. How many have ever had a legitimate vision or a legitimate dream from the Lord? Most of us have at some point. Another manifestation is people will confess their sins and make things right with God and with people that they've wronged. Did you know that's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit? And the last one is major healings and miracles, signs and wonders. And that's Matthew 12, 13. And so let me just read this and we'll pray. Many times God will start things in humble surroundings because of human pride and exclu exclusivity. Many times, like Azusa Street, God poured out his spirit in such humble surroundings. I think about the fields of Cane Ridge or something. I mean, it was just humble, humble surroundings. God did this because of human pride. And remember this, River of Life, your church is not the only one on which God will pour out his spirit. If we ever try to box in revival or control it, that's going to mark the end of it. God's going to pour out his spirit here, but he's going to pour out his spirit other places. Don't try to control it. Don't try to make it into a denomination. The next thing I would say is overt acts of God produced by God caused the flesh to stumble. Most revivals at the beginning were rejected by people manifestations are simply the outward visible signs 
of an inward work of the Holy Spirit, one needs to ask, does it glorify God? Is it creating a hunger in people for God? Is it drawing people closer to Jesus? Is it bringing any spiritual depth to them? Is there a practical change in their life over time? You and I both know that the Apostle Paul's own testimony would be rejected in most of Christendom today. If there was a guy that came in from the streets and said, I was going down the street, I was riding on a horse, I saw this bright light, I was thrown to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, told me quit kicking against the goats, I was blinded for three days. I went to a guy that talked in tongues. He prayed for me. Scales fell off my eyes. I was filled with the Holy Spirit, and I started speaking in tongues. You know as well as I do, he'd be run out of most places. Yet he wrote most of our New Testament. And people get up and read his writings every, every week, and they act like, oh, the great apostle Paul, but if Paul was here today giving his testimony, they would run him out of the church. That is one big, huge manifestation of the Holy Ghost. He was thrown on the ground, had an encounter. You know, all these things happened to him. But see, here's what people do. They want to take out their camera, and they want to take a picture of Paul struck to the ground or blinded or something, and then they want to hold up that Polaroid picture and say, there's no way this was of God. God would never blind a man like this. <laughs> But what they, you know, I'm telling the truth, right? But what they should have done was get out their video camera and follow Paul home. And they should have seen the outworking of what actually happened in his life and how it made him repentant. It totally gave him a new heart. He was a completely different man. He became a, an awesome man of God, a great apostle, and won many to Jesus if they had not taken just a snapshot of something that happened to him but followed his life and saw the fruit of his life. They would have realized, you know what? He did have some encounter with Jesus. He had to have. Look at the difference in him. He went from being this religious murderer to being a great apostle for Christ. So, Lord, we thank you tonight for your word. Lord, let this be sealed in our hearts. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right.